for the next lesson in the adult instruction class. What I'm going to do is record it and put it online. And so I'm just going to give this class since we're a little bit behind schedule. And in order to catch us up, I'm going to give an extra lesson during the week. That way I can cover the topic of justification in person in the class on Sunday. And that lesson is the most important lesson. So that's what I want to do in person. Um, and this one is important as well, but I have to compromise somewhere. So uh, regarding the work of the Holy Spirit, um, I'm going to give that lesson here. So let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those who are not yet your own and to confirm those who have, uh, who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart and from the heart to the lip and from the lip to the life that as you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so the topic for today and this lesson is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to begin by asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. Uh, he's not a thing, but God himself. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. this is where we get the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before his ascension, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that uh, the power ascribed to the Father and the Son is also joined to that of the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit as well. And the Holy Spirit is his name. And the Holy Spirit's pronouns are he and him. And we don't want to refer to the Holy Spirit as it, because there's a lot of theological problems when we, when we begin to do that, when we begin to speak of um, this, the Holy Spirit as an it. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's not the force of God or the energy of God, but the Holy Spirit is God himself. And we know this because in this verse, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and you can't lie to an impersonal force or an object. You can't lie to a chair. You can't lie to the wall. Uh, you can only lie to a person. A chair can't be deceived. Um, the wall can't be deceived. You can try and deceive a person. So the Holy Spirit is not part of God, but God himself. Because in that same verse in Acts chapter 5, it says, um, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit you have not lied to men, but to God. So not a part of God, not um, a portion of God, but God completely. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 also says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Again, <clears throat> you can't grieve an object or make an object grieve. Uh, you can only do this to a person, to one who has a will and who has a mind. Um, of his own. So uh, that is 
who the Holy Spirit is. And we want to talk about who he is and then his work. And probably the most significant and clear exposition of the Holy Spirit's work is going to be found on the day of Pentecost. Um, This is a significant day. And we see very clearly what the Holy Spirit's work and promise is. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he, <clears throat> he promised his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And then he sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Uh, it was his resurrection three days after his crucifixion. And then his ascension happened 40 days after his resurrection. And then 10 days after his ascension was Pentecost or 50 days. You can count it 50 days from his resurrection. Uh, Pentecost means 50. And there was a a feast day during that time. Uh, The Feast of Pentecost was one of Israel's three major agricultural festivals. You can find this if you want in Leviticus chapter 23. Think specifically verses 15 through 16. It's the second great feast in the Jewish year. And uh, Shavuot, which means a feast of weeks or the feast of harvest, was the name of this of this festival. Now, this festival of Pentecost also was one of the Jews' three pilgrimages. And what that required was for all of the Jewish males to go to Jerusalem uh, to be there. Uh, for this event. And the Jews were dispersed around the world for many different reasons. They all lived in different lands. They all spoke different languages. They had their own people and nations. But one thing they had in common was that they would come back to Jerusalem for this festival. And they would uh, come from all around the world to this one place. Now, these people would travel to Jerusalem during the Passover and they would remain until the Feast of Weeks. Uh, That is Pentecost. Um, Now, we get to Acts chapter 2, verse 12. In fact, let me get my Bible here. So Acts chapter 2, verse 12. This is where we find the account, the historical account of Pentecost. Now, it says, um, sorry, let me, let me back up a little bit to, to the beginning of chapter uh, 2, starting at verse 1 through 12, I mean. So the day of Pentecost came, and they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a violent blast of wind came from heaven, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw tongues like flames that separated and one rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and started to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. Jews who feared God had come from every nation under heaven to live in Jerusalem. And when that sound came, the crowd gathered and was dumbfounded because each one heard the disciples speak his own language. Amazed and wondering, they asked, don't all these who are speaking come from Galilee? And how does every one of us hear his own language he was born in? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and people living in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the country near Cyrene in Libya, the visitors from Rome, Jews, and those who have accepted the Jewish religion, people from Crete and Arabia. In our own languages, we hear them tell about God's wonderful things. They were all amazed and puzzled. What can this mean? They asked one another. And others sneered, saying they're, they're full of new wine. Okay, so in this text, we see three miracles. We see a number of miracles, and I'm going to point out three of them. The first is the sound of wind, and we can see that in verse 2. Uh, pay careful attention, because it doesn't say that there was wind. It says that it was the sound of wind. And wind um, and the Spirit are the same word in, in Hebrew. It's ruach. And the, the, whenever we see this in the Scriptures, the Spirit, breath, and uh, wind are all the same word used together. Uh, but God uses the sound of the wind to bring all of these people to make them curious as to what is happening. It's something that sounds like a hurricane or a tornado or a great gust of wind, whatever it is, but there is no wind. And so everybody comes and gathers around where the disciples are. The next miracle is that there are tongues of fire. Now, I know in the <coughs> the Sunday school curriculums and pictures and paintings, we often see little actual tongues of fire on people's heads. Um, but it's not that there were just little flames on top of their head. Rather, what the Greek here is suggesting is that they were glowing, that they were engulfed in this flame, uh, so that they were their whole bodies were shining and glowing in this way. They appeared to be on fire, but they weren't burning. And this kind of reminds us of the burning bush. The, the import of the burning bush was that God was present and that he spoke from the bush. And where is God saying his voice will be coming from now? From these apostles, from these people. Uh, so in the Old Testament, the, the bush was burning. Uh, the bush appeared to be burning, but it was not burnt and yet God spoke from that bush. And then here in the New Testament, we see the apostles uh, appear as if they are on fire, and yet they're not being burnt. And then God is saying, I'm going to speak through the mouths of these men. Um, the text says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that they didn't have the Holy Spirit already. They were already Christians. We know that. They've confessed their faith in Christ. They, they've been following Christ for several years, they've seen his resurrection, so on and so forth. So it doesn't mean that they became Christians or they were converted in that moment. Rather, it means that they were given a special gift and is the gift to speak in other languages, to speak in tongues. Now, tongues here, um, we're going to see this in verse 4. It says, and they start to speak in other languages or other tongues. Tongues here means other languages. Um, in, in fact, you can find the actual languages that they spoke in verses 5 through 13. It lists them out. The language of the Parthians or the tongue 
of the Medes, the tongue of the Elamites, the tongue of the Mes those living in Mesopotamia, the language of those in Judea, Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and so on and so forth. So it lists all of these languages because these are the people from these places who came in and said, we're hearing you speak in our language. Now, <clears throat> uh, the thing is, this is a, a remarkable miracle. So they're kind of progressing in amazement. The sound of wind without wind, that's pretty amazing. The tongues of fire without being burned, that's pretty amazing. Uh, speaking in other languages that you haven't studied is remarkable and astounding. I mean, consider this. In that day and age, a number of the people were illiterate. There weren't books um, or bookstores that you could just go and pick up a book. There wasn't any Rosetta Stone that you could learn a language. In order to learn a language, you had to interact with the people who spoke that language and those people stuck together. They lived in their separate countries and their separate nations. So in order for you to learn, I don't know, German, for example, there were no books, there were no cassette tapes or recordings, no podcasts. You had to go live in Germany and you had to live there for a certain amount of time in order to pick up the language. And then, in or and then you had to come back and you could speak that language. Um, now what's happening here is that the disciples are speaking all of these other actual languages without ever having been to those other places or studied those languages or learned the languages. And yet the Holy Spirit gave, him, gave them the ability to speak those languages. And this is just a, a remarkable thing. So they're able to speak these languages and um, the, the miracle there is, is not... I've oftentimes heard it explained this way, that the, the disciples are speaking one generic random language or a heavenly language, and then everybody hears it in their own tongue or their own language. And that's not what the text says. Uh, what the text says is that in our own languages, we hear them tell about God's wonderful things. We see that in verse 11. <coughs> The reason they're amazed and they're wondering is because they ask the question, don't all these who are speaking come from Galilee? And then here's the question. If they're all from Galilee, they live there, they speak Hebrew, they speak Greek and Aramaic, and those are the, the three basic languages there. The question is this, how does every one of us hear his own language he was born in? So our mother's native tongue, how are we hearing them speak those languages when they're not from my place? It's, it's like um, uh, finding someone who speaks your language that uh, you haven't heard in, in such a long time before. It's, it's an astonishing thing. Or to find somebody, I don't know, for example, someone, take somebody from South America who then speaks German. <laughs> And it's, it's an astounding thing. You see this and how, how in the world did you learn German? How did that happen? Well, what's remarkable is that they're not just speaking one language, but they're speaking dozens of languages and they're switching between these languages masterfully, um, switching languages and, and using their own dialects in these ways. Okay, that's the third miracle and that's remarkable. Uh, the point is that all of these miracles that the Holy Spirit performed point to the apostles. 
The sound of the wind points to the gathering of the apostles there. The tongues of fire point to the apostles. Now, this languages points to the apostles. And I want you to keep this in mind that it wasn't that everybody was speaking language, the, these different languages. It's that the apostles were given the ability to speak these languages to all people. Um, and all of these miracles point to the apostles. And the apostles, what do they do? And what do they do in the sermon? Peter stands up before them and preaches his Pentecost sermon on Joel. Who does he point to? He points to Jesus, the life the death and resurrection and the forgiveness of Jesus. So all of these signs point to the apostles and then who the apostles point to, they point to the Lord. Now, there is a fourth miracle and this is the most astounding one from all of the miracles. It says at the very end of his sermon, they cried out and said, what are we to do, brothers? Um, they were impaled. They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? They say. And then Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be given the Holy Spirit. What is promised belongs to you and to your children and to all who are far away, all whom the Lord our God will call. And then verse 41 says, And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. Or uh, other translations say they were added that day, about 300 or 3,000 souls. Um, Peter preaches a sermon. It cuts them to the heart. These Jews were there to see Jesus die 50 days before. They saw him bleeding, emaciated, and dying on the cross. And they weren't cut to the heart. They saw Jesus whipped and flogged and people spit on his face and they weren't cut to the heart. They, they saw it and they just continued on their way like it was nothing, like it was just a criminal dying. But now they hear this sermon and they are cut to the heart and they are repentant and they have faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And so the question is why? Why is it that they witnessed the very death of Christ and they weren't moved. But then they hear the preaching of the word about Christ and they were cut to the heart and moved and they repented and they became Christians. Why is that? And the answer is found in, it's found in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's not in their seeing or their witnessing, but it is in their hearing. The Holy Spirit works powerfully through the preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> so this, is, this leads to the next point here about man's inability to believe in God on his own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. That is, they're foolish to him, they're stupid to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, those two sort of go together. If these things are, if you are spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses, then it makes sense 
that you can't understand the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. And if your spirit is dead, your spirit can't discern anything. It can't learn or know anything. And in fact, our our condition is so bad that we find the things of God, the beautiful words of God, in our natural state, we find them to be stupid and foolish. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Again, it's not that the flesh is apathetic to the things of God or doesn't care. It's hostile. It is against, antagonistic to the things of God. In order to believe in Jesus, you have to become a Christian. We all agree on that. But in order to be a Christian, what? You have to believe in Jesus. Uh, so you see this? This is a, a cycle, a circle that we're stuck in. If you, if you want to believe in Jesus, well, you've got to be a Christian. But if you, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus. So which comes first? How do you know this? How, how do you do this? Well, the thing that breaks this cycle, that it's impenetrable to us, is the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who convinces us and makes us both believe in Jesus and be a Christian at the same time. <clears throat> this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm going to focus on here we know man's inability to believe in God. There are many texts that talk about our poor, miserable, depraved condition in our sin. But we see that not everybody remains in that condition. Everybody's born naturally, not believing in the Lord, conceived against the Lord, uh, with their hearts turned against him. And yet not everyone today is against the Lord. There are Christians, people who love the Lord with all their heart. So what is going on? How, what is the change there? Why is it that some people love God and some don't? Uh, the, real, the real mystery is not that anyone doesn't love God. That makes sense. We're all born in sin. The mystery is why anyone loves God, why anyone listens to his word, why there's anybody in church. So what's going on there? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is true. We, as Lutherans, we assert this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is faith in Christ that saves you and that works. Now, the question is, if that's the case, then what about faith? Where does faith come from? And we talked about this before. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing. Well, hearing what? hearing the word of Christ. So what comes first? Your faith in God or the word of God working in your heart and giving you that faith? Well, it's the word of God comes first. His work precedes yours. In fact, his work is the foundation for yours. The reason you have faith and you believe is precisely because the Holy Spirit has already worked in your heart. So it's not a decision that you make when you decide. If you say, well, I decide to be a Christian. I decide to follow Jesus. Uh, that moment is not the moment of your conversion. 
the Lord was your savior before then. And he was already convert. He had already converted you before you could say it with your mouth or believe it in your heart. The Holy Spirit had already worked in your soul. First Corinthians <coughs> chapter 12, verse three says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, if you say Jesus is Lord, then it is on account of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has already worked in you, that he was the one who converted you. You didn't convert yourself. You didn't decide to save yourself. The Lord decided to save you. Uh, there's, there's actually a wonderful hymn in our hymnal. I'm going to put it to the side here and just to remind myself to uh, read it to you uh, at the end here. Um, okay, let me continue with the verses. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 14 says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That is, uh, purple is a very difficult color to make. It's very expensive. So this woman is rich. And the scriptures say she was a worshiper of God. The Lord, here's the verse, the Lord opened her heart to what? To pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. Okay. Who opened her heart? Did she, did she hear these words and then just walk over and decide, you know what, today's going to be the day I'm going to open my heart and I'm going to pay attention to this. Did that come from her? It couldn't have come from her because we know that man is dead in his trespasses. The flesh is hostile to God. He cannot understand them. They're folly to him. <clears throat> so the fact, so her heart naturally was closed to the Lord and she didn't pay attention. And that's the case for everybody in the world. Naturally, our hearts are closed to God and we do not pay attention to the word of God. But the scripture says, the Lord opened her heart. It was the Lord's doing. So if she then says, I believe this and I want to pay attention to these words, well, then it is the Holy Spirit, the Lord himself who has done this. In fact, if you're paying attention to this right now and listening to these verses and this teaching, it's not because you decided to uh, or you moved yourself to do this. But it was the Holy Spirit who moved you and who's actually driving you to pay attention even now. Okay, Acts chapter 18, verses 27 through 28 says, When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Again, the point here is that they believed through grace, that their belief is on account of grace, that grace precedes their belief. So it's not that you have to have uh, faith in the grace of God and that your faith is a separate thing and then great, the grace of God is some object out there, but rather the reason you do believe in the grace of God is because of the grace of God, is because his grace has already worked upon you. He has been gracious and merciful to you to bring you to believe in his grace and mercy. John chapter 6, verse 28 through 29, then says, uh, Then they said to him, What must we do 
to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the Jews come up to him and say, well, what do we have to do? What is our doing? What is our work that we have to do? And then uh, Jesus flips this around and says, no, the work of God is this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, if you believe in him whom he has sent, it is not your work, but it is the work of God. So we praise God for our own faith. We don't say faith was my doing, what I decided, what I chose, and then God is just uh, an innocent bystander or somebody who's far removed. Rather, um, it is the work of God that you believe in him. It is the work of God that you believe in his work, (laughs) that he sent his only begotten son to save you. So the credit doesn't go to you And it doesn't go to your decision or your uh, commitment or your sincerity. God decided to make you his before you could decide to make him yours. God decided to be sincere and to uh, commit himself to you, to, to devote himself to you before you could devote yourself to him. Um, Ephesians chapter two, eight through nine says by grace, You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. Again, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the the following part says, and this is not your own doing. What I've seen a lot of people do is they say, well, the grace is not your own doing, but the faith is your doing. But the reality is that the this is not your own doing is referring to the whole thing. Uh, if By grace you have been saved through faith. Take that as one whole thing. Both the grace and the faith and the saving. All of that is not your own doing. Rather, all of it is the gift of God. It would be wrong to say, well, God had grace upon me and he saved me, but faith is my doing. No, he says it is the gift of God. And, it's, and if faith were your decision, then it would be a work. And if it were, would be a work, then you would have a reason to boast. But here Ephesians chapter 2 says there is room for none of it. You don't have any reason to boast. Not because you're better and not because you have faith. Rather, you have every reason to be thankful and to humble yourself before God. Um. <clears throat> uh, the next question is, how does the Holy Spirit give faith? That is, how does he make you a Christian? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. And he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How is it that you are a Christian? It is through God's choosing. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. I mean, in- engrave this 
in the wall if you have to, on your, on your desk or wherever it might be. What is first, faith or the word of God? And the answer is the word of God. Where's the word of God coming from? From God himself. The word creates faith. Faith depends upon the word. The word doesn't depend upon your faith. The truthfulness of God's word doesn't depend upon whether you believe it. God's word is true. And the truth of his word causes you to believe it. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I am not, this is Paul speaking, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel isn't just information. It's not just neutral information that is just spewed out of the pulpit or written down on a piece of paper and uh, spoken to you in person. It's not just information that you can say, okay, well, I'll figure out what to do with this. And uh, it's just neutral. It's a dead word. And I have to somehow conjure up faith in myself. Rather, the way the Bible talks about this, the way the apostles, the holy apostles of God speak of the gospel, the very words of the preaching of Christ and him crucified, is that it is the power of God. And the power of it is that it saves people uh, by giving them faith. <clears throat> now, this next part is a little difficult because I want to talk about different views of conversion. And I have a diagram here, and it's very difficult to sort of explain this to you without you seeing it. So I'll do my best. But there are different views of conversion. Not everybody believes what the scriptures have said. So everything I just read is what Lutherans believe. And we believe that because it comes from the scriptures. So we don't have any ideas that we import to the scriptures. Rather, we draw that out from the scriptures and we let the Bible be our theology. However, what other people do is they try to insert reason and they try to insert man's will and power and they can't make sense of God converting people and uh, by his grace alone. So they try to make it fit in their mind. And the way they do this is by rejecting some scriptures, uh, scripture verses and inserting their reason and saying, well, it must be this, this way. So let me explain it this way. Uh, that justification is the reconciliation between God and man. And there are four possible ways that this could happen. They are... Um, th these four ways. <clears throat> the first way is called Pelagianism. And this was uh, invented by a guy named Pelagius who lived about 354 AD to about 418. And he said that God is far away in heaven and you are on earth and you have to make the decision completely to find God that he has no part of your conversion, nothing to do with your salvation apart from accomplishing it. And you simply have to seek him out and you have to find him and that you are so alive in your spirit and in your soul that you have the freedom to just go ahead and do this. And so that you're free to then find God and make him your Lord and savior. That's the first way. So it's entirely the work of man. Now, the second view is a nuance of this view. It's called semi-Pelagianism, so kind of Pelagian. And 
this is the idea that it's basically the same thing, but that God is a little bit more active this time. So let, let me summarize it this way. It's, it's something like this, that you make, you take one step toward God and he takes two toward you, that you do your part, that you go to him, you do your best, and then God will do the rest and he'll come to you. <laughs> so the idea there is that you are then conjuring up in yourself and you initiate the process of salvation. You say, okay, I'm going to come up with faith and then I'm going to do the best I can with this. And then God will then complete it. That's semi-Pelagianism. Now there's another teaching, another false teaching. It's called synergism. And this came about in the year about 529 AD in the Synod of Orange. Uh, It's synergism, (coughs) which means it's two words, uh, two Greek words that come uh, put together, which mean working together. Sin or in sync is uh, together or with, and energy is to work. So you combine these words, uh, you are working with God. However, the difference between this and semi-Pelagianism is that it's reversed. Instead, it is God who makes the first move and then he expects you to complete it. So God acts first and he gives out a little hint of his salvation. He puts out a little spark out there and you are so still so alive in your spirit that you then um, hear that and then you respond and you make this movement toward God. So he takes one step toward you and then you take one step toward him. That God does a little bit first and then you complete it. And so you're kind of tag teaming in this, that you both are working together. Now, up until now, these three false views of conversion are all uh, putting emphasis on man's work and saying that man is doing the work and man is doing this, uh, either beginning, doing all the work or initiating it or completing it. But the fourth view of conversion is this, and it is called monergism. Again, mono means one and energy is work. So this is the energy or the work of one. And it is not the work of us, of us poor, miserable sinners, or we poor, miserable sinners. Uh, It is the work of God alone. And this we find not in any, written by any person or by any synod or council. This we find in Holy Scripture itself, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses. So it's not that you're alive, that your spirit is alive, doing well and just bored and figuring out what to do and then finally finds God. Your spirit is dead. And what can a dead person do? Nothing. They can't respond to you. They can't talk to you. They can't discern. They can't speak. They can't think. Nothing. As dead as a dead body is, and as much as a dead body can do, that is how much your soul and spirit can do in its natural state to save itself. Oftentimes, the, the analogy that I hear is uh, for conversion is something like this, that you're, you fall off a boat and you're in the ocean and somebody throws out a life preserver to you or a lifesaver to you and it's up to you to grab it. So the person did all the work to get that life 
preserver, life vest to you. And all you have to do is reach out your hand. And that's what faith is. It's just that little movement. However, the problem in this analogy is what? That you are conscious, that you are alive, that you're breathing. Uh, Consider this. (coughs) Use the same analogy. You fall off a boat, but you drown. And you are unconscious. Now, somebody has to jump into the water, swim out to you, take your body, swim it back to the boat, put you on the boat, perform CPR, uh, do mouth to mouth, all of this sort of stuff just to get you breathing again. Now, let me ask you this. Whose work, who did the work here? It was the one who did all of those things. Um, And the one who performed the CPR, the one who breathed in your mouth, the one who gave you uh, breath and pulled that water out of your lungs and got you breathing again. Um, it would be wrong for that person, if somebody who's unconscious there, who's choking on water, it would be wrong to, for me to say something like, well, do you want me to save you? Do you want me to perform CPR on you? I need your consent. I need you to, to tell me whether you want me to save you or not. Well, you can't do that because the person's unconscious. They have no idea what's happening to them and they're dying. Uh, Now, that is the situation of someone who is dying. But the scriptures say that we are in the position of someone who is dead. Our spirits are dead. Our souls are lifeless. And so the work here is completely that of the Lord's doing. Consider... Lazarus, who was in the tomb. He was in the tomb for four days. And what did the Lord do? do? Did, what did he say? Did he say, Lazarus, do you want me to resurrect you? <laughs> no, he simply said, Lazarus, come out. And then Lazarus walked out without his knowledge, without his doing, without his decision. The Lord gave him life before he, um, before he could ask for it. In the same way, uh, this is also true of, um, of life. That our, our existence was not something we asked for. We didn't decide to be born. We didn't decide to exist. We didn't decide or choose our parents. We didn't choose if we wanted to be born or what day we wanted to be born on. And yet, you were born. It simply happened. You had life. You were not existent. You were nothing. And then you had life, you existed. And the analogies of the scriptures are that when it comes to baptism, when it comes to conversion, is that of someone who is dead or, and resurrected or somebody who is being born. That the scriptures talk about being born again. If you are born again, it is not of your choosing. It is simply something that happens to you. Um, now, it's true that you are aware of your life. You're aware of your birth. You're aware that you have parents. Now you are, but at the moment you weren't. And so what, what's, so is it true? Can you be aware that you're a Christian now? Yes, of course. I'm aware that I'm a Christian. I know uh, when the Lord baptized me, I know these things and I can cognitively think about them. But at the time I couldn't, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't born. That doesn't mean that the Lord didn't convert me then. This is the point. In fact, uh, this is what we sing in one of our hymns, and this is the hymn I wanted to refer to earlier. Hymn 573 says this. 
Lord, tis not that I did choose thee. That I know could never be. For this heart would still refuse thee, had thy grace not chosen me. Thou hast from the sin that stained me, washed and cleansed and set me free, and unto this end ordained me, that I ever live to thee. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to thy heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above thee, for thy grace alone I thirst, knowing well that if I love thee, thou, O Lord, didst love me first. Okay. Um, with that being said, I want to get to this next part, which is on the means by which God converts us and makes us Christians. <clears throat> he doesn't just zap this into our heart or randomly do this while we're, I don't know, watching TV or eating a sandwich or something. And then just immediately, boom, you're a Christian. God works through means. God gives faith through the word. As we've seen this time and time again, faith comes by hearing. It is through preaching. God does not convert people directly. God convert. He has chosen in his good and gracious and holy will and in his great wisdom to convert people through means. By using a thing to deliver himself to you. He doesn't have to. But this is what he has chosen to do. He's able and capable of doing this. Let me give you an analogy here. Uh, imagine that there's a house. You build a house that's about 50 meters away from a river with water. And <clears throat> in order to survive, you need to get water to the house. But you need to transport the water there. So what you do is then you build a pipeline from the river all the way into the house and you bring the water in and you connect it to your faucet and so that you have that way you have the ease of turning the handle and water from the river is coming out of your faucet and you can use that for cooking and cleaning and uh, bathing and all these sort of things now imagine somebody comes to visit your house somebody visits you in this um in this house 50 meters away from the river and they say to you well um you see all you have to do is turn this knob and water comes out so if that's the case why don't you get rid of those pipelines because you don't need them all you need is this faucet all you need is this little part right here you just turn this handle and the water comes out of the faucet so so Dig up all of those pipes and return them. Get your money back because there's water right here. It's not coming from the river. It's coming from here. And your response would be, what are you thinking? What, what are you talking about? The reason we have water in the sink is because there's water in the pipes. It's because of the pipes. It's because the water from the river is coming through those pipes through the faucet. It's still the water from the river isn't it? It just traveled 50 meters to get to where you are. The pipes are how that water got to you. Okay, this is what I mean. This is kind of an analogy for the means of grace. 
Christ died on the cross over 2,000 years ago and thousands of miles away from where we live here today. We live in the year 2023, and there's a massive chasm of space and time between us. It's not just 50 meters. It is thousands of miles and thousands of years of a span between us. The question is this, how do we get what Jesus did on the cross to us? How do we receive the forgiveness that he won there? How does it come to you? We need faith to receive it. Yes. But how is the faith given? The Holy Spirit uses the word. That is, though the word is, is like those pipes, those pipes that transport the water to the faucet. In the same way, the word transports the forgiveness and the merits of Christ on the cross through those means to you to have faith. You, you can't say something like this. You can't say, look, I don't need the word. I don't need the sacraments. We don't need any of this stuff. The only thing we need is faith. <laughs> Where do you think that faith comes from? Where does that water come from? It comes from the river, but it's delivered through the pipes. Faith comes from God, but it's delivered through his word. It's delivered through the sacraments, the, the, the ways that the Lord has chosen to bring it to you. Now, that's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about, the means of grace and the, the way that the Holy Spirit transports and brings these things to you. Christ achieved everything on the cross and you receive everything that he achieved through the word, through the sacraments. Now, the question is, how do you know if you're a Christian? This is a difficult question. A lot of people will ask this, and it's a common question that people wrestle with. How do, you know if, how do I know if I'm a Christian? What, what's the mark of me being a Christian? Is it my life? Is it my works? Do I get a special feeling? Does something change? Am I a happier person? What, what's going on? Here's the answer. It's none of those things. The answer is this. You know if you're a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by his death and resurrection, he has made full atonement that has forgiven all of your sins. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 says, You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Revealed what to you? Right before this, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, You're blessed. Why? Because you didn't learn that from flesh and blood. You learned that from your, my Father who is in heaven. Acts chapter 16, verse 29 through 31 says <clears throat> that the jailer called for a light. He rushed in. Uh, this is when uh, Paul and Silas were in jail. And he came in and he fell trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas because something was so powerful that, uh, that opened up the prison for them. And then he led them out and he asked them, he says this, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They didn't say you have to feel a certain way, that you have to, uh, everything in your life has to change. 
uh, or whatever it might be, they said the mark of the Christian is that you believe in Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Um, we'll talk about faith and sanctification later. That true faith does make itself known through works and is seen by, by others. But those works don't factor into you being a Christian. The thing that makes you a Christian is faith. Um, John chapter 20 verse 31 says this. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not by doing, but by believing. And how do you believe? By the things that are written. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that if you believe in the name of the Son of God, then you can know with certainty and be assured that you have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not come under judgment. It's not that they will have or that it's a potential, but the one who believes has eternal life. Um, I want to give you just some pastoral advice here after having read those verses. My advice here is this. Do not put your faith in your works. The scriptures do not point you to believe in your works or to find your works to be the source and the assurance for your salvation. And don't put your faith even in your faith. Don't believe in how much you believe or trust in how much you trust to save you. Rather, put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you. Because that is what faith does. Faith trusts in and relies upon not itself, but upon Jesus. And when you're looking to Jesus, then you have faith. If you're looking to your works, you don't have faith. You're not looking to Jesus and you're not Uh, you can have no assurance. If you're looking to your own faith, you can never be certain because your faith wavers and it shakes. But if you put your faith in Jesus, that if you look look to Christ and what he has done in his work, then you can be certain of your salvation. And that the very act of looking to Christ for salvation means that you do have faith. If you have faith... If you have faith, you're a Christian, even if your faith is weak. Because you're not saved by the quantity of your faith, but by the quality of your faith. You're not saved by how much faith you have. You are saved by who your faith is in. You're not saved by how much you trust God. You're saved by which God you trust. (laughs) In whom then do you trust? In my dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Take, for example, this analogy uh, of walking on a frozen lake. That imagine that there's this big lake 
and it's frozen. And I say, I tell you, hey, this lake is frozen um, to the point that it can support your weight and you can walk by on it. Now, if somebody then says, you know what? I don't really believe you. And somebody else says, you know what? I'm taking your word for it. I don't care. And they just dash onto the frozen lake and they run across without a care in the world. And they start, start skating and sliding in the, in the ice um, without any worry. And then the other person who says, you know, I don't really trust you. I'm skeptical. And they step out onto the ice and they walk inch by inch, uh, inching their way over to the other side of the lake with every creak and crack that they hear, they, they, their, their heart starts beating, they start sweating, they get nervous, but they both make it to the other side of the lake because the ice was thick enough to hold them. And just like I said, it would be. Now, let me ask you this. Um, one had the attitude and the certain confidence, an unshakable confidence in what I said about the ice and just skated across. And the other was skeptical and maybe full of doubts and yet inched his way across. And yet they both made it across. Why? Because it wasn't what they believed about what I said that held them up over the water. It's the objective fact that the water was frozen and it was a solid ground enough to hold their weight even if they doubted that and whether they believed it much or they believed it very little. <laughs> um, in the same way, this is what happens with our faith and salvation. What matters is not your faith. What matters is who your faith is in. Weak faith, weak faith in Jesus still saves. Um, this, in the same way, strong faith in a false God, you can be the most devout and pious person, but to be devoted to a false God, an idol, no matter how strong and sincere your faith in that idol may be, will never save you. Because like the frozen lake, it doesn't depend upon how strong your legs are. It depends upon what you are standing on. Strong legs on broken ice will still fall. But weak legs on strong ice will not fall. <laughs> Do you see this? Weak faith. Oh, let me put it this way. Strong faith on a weak, non-existent God will fail. But even weak faith in a strong God will succeed. It will be upheld and it's built on a solid rock of a foundation. <clears throat> okay, having said all of this, I want to get to this final point here, which is the effect of faith, the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives and what we call the new life. What effect does the Holy Spirit have on my life? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. In other words, the Holy Spirit not only gives us faith, 
but also the power to live a new life. So it's not that you can have faith and then just not care about the word of God after that or just say, I don't care about coming to church. I don't care what else God has to say. I just know in my mind, I have this historical knowledge that uh, uh, Jesus died for my sins. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. The truth is, that is true. And it is true that Jesus died for your sins. But if you don't care uh, about the word of God, then that proves that you just don't have true faith. And that should drive you to repentance to then cling to the word of God and believe it all the more. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The Holy Spirit, in other words, gives you the power to overcome sin. Um, you were slave of sin, and then you have become obedient from the heart. At one time, you didn't come to church, and now you do. You are obedient to the words and the commands of God. Why? Why is that the case? Because the Holy Spirit changed your heart. You were a slave to your mattress, and now you have made yourself uh, a slave to the Lord. You belong to him. You come to his church. It, it pulls you here. You have this... Um, <clears throat> this attraction, this affection for the word of God that brings you day in and day out. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Holy Spirit here gives us the power to do good works. If you do good works, it's because the Holy Spirit has strengthened you to do them. I want to make one final uh, distinction before closing here, and it's this. There's a difference between progressive sanctification and perfect sanctification. Progressive sanctification means that we increase in faith and in good works. So that, in other words, if you have been a Christian for 10 years you should be doing more good works now in your 10th year of being a Christian than you did in your first year. If you should be more generous in your 10th year than you were in your first year and more kind and more patient and more loving so that as you are sanctified, as the word of God continues to work on you, you, you increase in these qualities. Uh, perfect sanctification says this, that we not only increase, but we eventually become perfect in faith and perfect in works. And I'm here to make the distinction and tell you that as Lutherans, we do not believe, we reject and we condemn perfect sanctification. It is wrong to say that you can have perfect faith or perfect works or that a day will come in your life uh, that you will not need to repent and that you will not need to, um, <clears throat> uh, that you will not need Jesus. That is not true. While we profess and teach progressive sanctification, we also, in the same breath, reject perfect sanctification. 
So we do say as Lutherans, you ought to be increasing in the faith, increasing in knowledge of God, increasing in faith towards the Lord, that your faith should be stronger, that you should be more kind and obedient and loving and generous and kind and all of these sort of things. These things should increase throughout your life, but you will never become perfect. You'll never become perfectly obedient or perfectly faithful or perfectly loving or become the perfect neighbor to any person. So they ought to increase, but we never reach that goal. That goal will come in the resurrection. Okay, where do we get this from? Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Now, uh, uh, sorry, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is saying, look, he has many good works and I'm not perfect. I've obtained a lot of things, but I'm not perfect. But even though I'm not perfect, that doesn't make me give up. I continue to press on to make it my own, to strive towards perfection, even though I cannot become perfect. But the truth is, is that Christ has made me his own. And that's what I cling to. Um, And as we do these good works, we don't look to them to save us. First John chapter one, verse eight says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is true and applicable. These verses, the word of the Lord uh, is applicable to our lives here and as sinful mortals, our entire life to your final breath. This verse will be true. You could get to your final breath. You could have done a million good works in your life. And then you get to your dying day, your final hour. And if you then at that moment say, you know what? I don't have any more sin. (laughs) Then you are a liar. You're lying to yourself and you are not in the truth. In fact, what follows is that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins. So there's not a moment in your life that you should not confess your sins. You should always confess them. Um, Luke chapter 17, verse 5 says, The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Again, increase. So that teaches us that we can have more or less faith, that our faith could decrease. So what we're asking here for is, Lord, let my faith increase. Uh, You can go from believing very strongly in the Lord and in his word to becoming very weak in it. But that's the wrong direction to go. Uh, That happens through sin and through unbelief and doubt and by staying away from the word of God. Rather, we say, Lord, increase my faith. And he does that through his means. Acts chapter 16, verse 5 says, The churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. By the way, pay attention to the tense of those those words. Or sorry, the the action of those words. Uh, They are passive. Um, The churches were were being strengthened. They weren't strengthening themselves. So who's doing the strengthening? Well, it's the Lord. Um, who is increasing their number, it is the Lord. Revelation chapter 2 verse 19 says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So again, here the Lord is acknowledging the church and he's saying that you have done greater things lately than you have 
than you had done previously. And that's because they've increased and gotten better. Now, again, I want to strive and emphasize this point that just because we can increase and become better in the faith and in good works, it does not mean that our salvation is now somehow more secure than it was before. That's not true. It's also not true that because we're increasing, therefore we can achieve perfection. That also is not true. We strive and we desire to keep the commandments of God even while we can't do it perfectly. We improve and we try to get better and better even though we are never perfect. And we do this out of not compulsion but thanksgiving to the Lord because of what he's done for us. And we press on toward that goal. And what we're doing as Christians is that we are acting out what we already are by faith. In faith, you are perfect in God's sight. And so, indeed, strive to be that way. Strive to be what you already are in Christ. Strive to be what he has made you uh, in faith. And we press on toward the goal to that final day when we won't have to struggle or fight anymore or fight away temptation, but we will simply be righteous and holy and perfect in the resurrection as the Lord himself is. Um, And we pray for this day and we ask the Lord to to haste this day that uh, he would uh, free us from this bondage to sin. All right. Well, thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, uh, we're concluding the section on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And on Sunday, we'll continue with the next lesson. So let's close with prayer. Uh, Almighty and merciful God, I have again heard your word and heard of your forgiveness for my many sins and the assurance of your love in Christ Jesus. I thank you for this undeserved grace. (coughs) And I ask that you keep me in the faith until... With all of your saints, I inherit your salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.